0: I love ETFs. Don't get me wrong, um, but sometimes if somebody's just starting out and they don't want to DIY trade themselves, like there's other options, and so a lot of it's about the education around like what else is possible here.
1: Welcome to episode fourteen of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. This is our first episode of 2018, and the topic on everyone's mind these days is that cryptocurrency that's burning a hole in your pocket, Bitcoin. We're gonna get to that later in the podcast, but first up is a discussion with a refreshing young voice in financial planning. One of my greatest frustrations has always been that it's very difficult to get unbiased, responsible investment advice in this country if you don't have at least half a million dollars to invest. That's because most fee-only advisors have high minimum account sizes, leaving the vast majority of Canadians to work with commission-driven salespeople who often do little more than push expensive mutual funds or worse, recommend risky strategies like borrowing to buy more expensive mutual funds. Shannon Lee Simmons realized all of this at a very early stage in her career. She quit her job with a large investment firm when she was just 25 years old because she wanted to work with Canadians who were being underserved by the financial industry. Today, at age 32, she runs a successful fee-only planning business called the New School of Finance. Now, she doesn't sell or even recommend specific investments, but she works with clients in all income brackets and life stages, including recent grads, small business owners, and those who just need a midlife checkup. What I appreciate most about Shannon's work is that it's authentic. Unlike a lot of bloggers and media personalities out there, she's actually worked directly with people as clients. So she understands what really resonates with them and what inspires change, as opposed to trite solutions that make good sound bites but are ultimately unrealistic. Shannon has just authored a new book called Worry-Free Money, published by HarperCollins, and she joined me in the podcast studio to talk about her approach. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the studio Shannon Lee Simmons, who's joining us to talk about her book, Worry-Free Money. Um, So, Shannon, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. All
1: right. Um, I thought I would begin by just asking you to share a little bit about your origin story. So, uh, how did you get to uh, what you're doing today and what were the reasons, what motivated you to take up the line of planning that you're doing now.
0: Yeah, so, okay, it all starts back a long time ago on Bay Street at an investment management shop called uh, Phillips Hager North. So I kind of cut my teeth there, which was private counsel, um, high net worth clients and in the investment management world. But I really loved the planning side, so although a lot of the things that we did was planning, um, but it was more of an investment management shop, and then we got bought out by one of the big banks, and so my dreams of working at a small boutique shop were over, and I was brought into the the massive bank system, and it was okay, but it just wasn't really me. It was like a bad fit, and then at the same time, the two thousand and eight two thousand and nine crash started, and I started hearing my own peers saying things to me like, "Oh, you're so lucky that you understand this stuff." I feel so like screwed, I don't know what I'm doing. And I combined that with once I was within the banking system, I kind of learned what happens to investors when they're not a high net worth investor, right? Like those different retail levels of services and the fees that are associated with that. Because originally, if you're high net worth, I mean, man, you're getting great service, transparent fees, lots of planning, like things are good. Mm-hmm. And so when I kind of learned that the whole entire market is segmented into how much money you have, and those who don't have that much money are underserviced. It really got stuck in my craw, and so I jumped ship in 2010. I quit. Um, I was only going to take one year out to do this project called the Barter Babes Project, which was the smartest, stupidest thing I ever, I ever <laughs> did. So I basically gave financial planning advice to 310 women in exchange for a bartered good or service, not cash. Um, And then after that year, I fell in love with being my own boss and working with a different demographic than just high net worth. And then I started New School Finance. And so that's where we're at today. And we are a fee-only financial planning firm, and we're affordable and accessible and trying to make it fun for people and not so scary.
1: Right. So you don't manage any investments for your clients. And this is one of the things that I've always found – you know, in this industry as well, because I backed into it, you know, in sort of the opposite way that you did it and that, you know, I wasn't in the financial business at all. Once I got into it, I started to really appreciate that, you know, as you say, clients who have a million dollars or more to invest have access to very good service Mm -hmm. at a very reasonable fee. But for all the rest of us, um, it's very, very difficult to get good help. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about the types of clients that you work with and what sorts of challenges that they face that um, you know, you're able to deal with as a fee-only planner that you know an investment advisor who only serves high net worth people would not be able to help with?
0: Yeah. So I think that the first thing that I can do that they might not be able to is see anybody. So mm. it doesn't matter what their financial balance sheet looks like. They can come to me because um, we, we charge almost like a, a law, law firm where it's like just for time, right? So you don't, if you have debt, you can come. If you have assets, you can come and there's no minimum or maximum or anything. Um, and so our, our, kind of bread and butter demographic that's coming in. And we get people from all walks of life, but the the vast majority of the people coming in are between the ages of, I'd say, late 20s all the way through to 55. And I call it like the kitchen table issues, right? So these are things like trying to buy a house or figuring out if it's okay to never buy a house, mm-hmm. um, trying to have kids, uh, planning for that, starting retirement savings, learning about getting yourself off the ground with investing in that kind of thing, and then checking in to see, like, am I on track? So it's the, those years that are so wonderfully beefy with life events. And I think that the, the need for financial planning is the highest. And so I'm so happy that we're able to help in those years, regardless of someone's financial situation, right? And it's the shame-free zone over at New School. So right. it doesn't matter if you got dead, it's okay.
1: Well, and it's it's interesting you use the term shame-free because um certainly a lot of people Uh, are under the impression that they should probably know a lot more than they do. And they feel very sheepish about asking questions. Mm -hmm. Um, They may not even understand how a mortgage works. They may not really understand everything that they're reading about index funds. What is that, right? So... How do you sort of approach clients who feel like they should understand more than they do? And how do you help them prioritize what they really need to understand and what's just a bunch of distractions?
0: Yeah, I have a saying that's actually in my office, and it's like, um, there are no stupid questions, which is such a trite cliche, but I, I have to bring it up all the time because of exactly what you say. Um, so I think the first thing is to remind people that's what I do every time, and all of our planners do to say, like, they don't teach this in school or they didn't. And they are starting that. – we're making huge waves there. But there is no expectation that you would know how to do this. I don't know how to do your job. So I don't know the first thing about what you do for a living. Why would you – like there's a reason I have a job. So mm-hmm. reminding people of that right off the bat kind of sets them at ease and say like this is a, an okay place to, to ask questions. Um, and I think that there's a lot of noise in the media. I mean we have 24-hour news. Um, click – like if you Google anything f- with your personal finances, there's there's 10,000 resources that are all saying different things. So even when sometimes you're seeking out help and advice, it comes at you from maybe all kind too many places. It's like death by a thousand, a, a thousand blogs. And so I think people end up more confused and that makes them feel stupid. And then they feel like, well, I'm just bad with money when that's not the case at all. It's just that no one ever sat down and curated information for them, right? And so prioritizing is an important thing. And that's also what I love about being a fee-only planner is that, you know, we don't make more money whether you put it on the mortgage or the RSP, right? And so I can look at someone's whole holistic situation and teach them, here's why I think this is the better thing. Here's why, this is how this works. And so it's a whole sit-down situation where they feel empowered and educated. Um, And especially in the investment world, I feel like that's where a lot of that I feel stupid happens because, you know, most people deal with mortgages and stuff on a day-to-day basis um, or at least they kind of understand how it works. But investing is like a different language sometimes, right? And so we have people come in and you hear tidbits at parties and and your friends are talking about stuff and you're nodding, nodding along going, yeah, yeah, I, me too. And then you have no idea and then sometimes it goes so long. I, I think that there was actually a client in uh, not long ago. He was 51 and he's been invested his whole life and he has no idea what a mutual fund is. Hmm. And he was invested in mutual funds. I was going to
1: say he probably owned a lot of them mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, just didn't know what they were. No idea. Doesn't <laughs>
0: actually understand what it is that he's invested in and for the first time felt like – okay, I'm going to ask all the dumb questions. I'm like, they're not dumb. You know what I mean? Like ask away. And so that has been a really cool experience. And I think it's really necessary for people to feel good about their finances.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that that you bring up, you know, an example of somebody who has invested for many years, but doesn't really understand what he Mm -hmm. holds. Um, I've certainly seen the opposite problem too, which is people who spend a lot of time on the internet reading resources that are aimed at investors. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen this myself. I mean, I write a lot on my blog about things like tax-efficient investing, and I get a lot of questions about it. And then I realize that the people writing, you know, have ten dollars or $20,000 to invest. Yeah. And um, I feel like you don't need to worry about the details of tax-efficient investing when you're getting started. Yep. Um, you've got other priorities. And I'm wondering if you have had people come to you sort of gung-ho about they're really interested in the idea of investing. And then you find out, well, they got a lot of student debt and they got a lot of um, other priorities. They probably even shouldn't be investing at all.
0: Yes, Yes. I'm so happy you brought this up. This happens all the time. Um, and I, so I see this in a couple of different ways. So even just whether or not they should be invested is the number one question, right? And so that's if you've got debt or precarious work, then you may not even want to have money invested because we need all hands on deck to either pay down debt or, or have an emergency account or something like that. So that's a big question, but it's exciting to invest and people feel smart. It makes them feel financially responsible. And so um, when they come in gung-ho about that, sometimes I'm like this buzzkill that's like, wah, wah, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, not yet, you, something like that. And I think that that shocks them because typically if you go into uh, a retail branch or something like that, they're going to push an RSP, they're going to push an investment, and that's those one of those truisms, right, where it's like – have to invest. Um, And so if I say something opposite, there's almost sometimes where I feel like they're like, really? You don't want me to save money? I'm like, well, that's not saving. It's investing. It's just different. Um, so there's that piece. And then also with somebody who is ready to invest. So they've got their emergency account on lockdown, their debt-free, all that kind of stuff. Um, I do find that even with the first time investing, um, you read tidbits on the internet about ETFs. ETFs are cool. They heard their friend talking about it at a party. And I, I call it fee shaming. Um, so this is something that happens a lot, especially of the, with the males of the species at parties. I hear it all the time. Um, not all, but just sometimes where it's like, you're paying 2% MER on a mutual fund? Oh, my God. Like, I'm paying, like, 0.05 on my ETFs. And and then it's like, well, so what's inherent in that is, like, you're an idiot. I'm smarter than you and uh and then that person goes away feeling like a fool, right? Because they didn't know. And I hate fee shaming because, you know what, maybe there's a reason or or maybe it's not that bad. and and they're just not empowered with that information. So uh, I, when that happens, I find that I have to wrestle against the drive to just do ETF sometimes because it's not always the best solution. Uh, I love ETFs, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes if somebody's just starting out and they don't want to DIY trade themselves, like there's other options. And so a lot of it's about the education around like, what else is possible here?
1: Let's talk a little bit about the investment options. I don't mean specific products, mm-hmm. but just the types of um, investment platforms that people can use if you're a relatively inexperienced investor. So I come to you and I say, you know, I've got twenty-five dollars or $50,000 to invest. I've never invested on my own before, but I'm really keen on using ETFs because they have such low fees. You know, how do you respond to a, a question yeah. like that?
0: Um, so the first thing is to actually explain all the different types of products. So I even go into like what a mutual fund is so that if you're going to choose ETFs, I want you to know what you're saying no to, right? So I want you to understand, and I usually also talk about index funds, like ETFs and mutual funds had a baby. Um, Mm -hmm. so are somewhere in the middle there. Um, and so what I'll do is, um, I'll say like, okay, I usually use an analysis or, or sorry, an analogy that's about like DIY with home renos, right? So some people want to do the the home reno themselves and want to install the floors, and do all the work. Obviously, this person's going to pay the least amount of money, but they're going to put in the most amount of work. Does that make someone who hires a contractor stupid? No, not unless they're overpaying for that contractor because they didn't know the right questions to ask. So using that analogy has been really helpful. And then I kind of plot out the different platforms in this contractor, I'm saying that in quotations, um, kind of realm, and then it really resonates. So on the DIY things, I'll say something like, okay, you could go on a, a brokerage account and, and here's what's kind of involved in that. So you're gonna have to actually trade. And I talk about the pros and cons of doing that, the commissions that might come from that, which a lot of people don't even talk about or think about. And then also the fact that what kind of a, how much effort do you wanna put in here? Like um, if you've got a monthly automatic withdrawal going into an account, this is gonna build up in cash and it's up to you to like take care of this every month like you're administering this account as well. And so some people I can tell right away are like super down, they're excited about that. They they want it and it's like great, we're going to chase this down. I'm still going to talk to you about the other platforms, but that feels like a right that feels like you're into it. And other people you can just see the white on their face, right? And they're like oh my God, I don't wanna do this. And I'm like, that's okay, there's other solutions. Um, and so then I talk about maybe using index funds, which are are a little bit easier on the administration side because you can set up a monthly contribution once it's done. Um, and then even robo advising and what that looks like in the service offering there, or like a managed solution, uh, like, a, like tangerine or something. So again, I'm not actually suggesting people go to specific places, but it's more like here's the different shades of service and trade off for fee. And then I'll compare it to, okay, and here's what you get in the active management market. And so just like with the contractor doing the floors, if you're going to pay for active management, take the performance out of the table. Like that's not on the table for what you're paying for because we can't control market returns. Like past performance is not indicative of future performance. So you're really paying for service. So you better be getting a one-on-one relationship. You better be getting financial advice. You better be getting tax planning advice and like all of the good reporting, administration help, all of that stuff if you're going to pay that fee. Because if you're not getting all that, that's when you're overpaying the contractor. So those are the kind of the things that I, I flush out for people so that they're empowered. So that when they go to a financial institution, wherever they choose, they know what questions to ask and they understand what the underlying investments are that they're actually going to be in and really fleshing what their risk tolerance is and their, their time horizons, so that they can make those empowered decisions when they go.
1: Again, another trend that, that I've certainly seen in talking with um, investors, new investors, is they um, are very focused and keen about investing, but they forget that before you invest, you need to save. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, you, um, I think, advocate some relatively aggressive savings targets, um, But let's talk a little bit about, you know, the kind of 10% rule that you hear very often. Um, Obviously, a lot of this depends upon your life stage and your income. So Mm -hmm. why don't you talk a little bit about how people can set realistic savings targets?
0: Yeah. And I actually shy away from, I think in that section of the book, I say like, okay, I know you want me to answer this. Like everyone's dying. How much do I need to, to put aside? Everyone's dying to know the answer to that question. And so as a planner, especially when you put something in writing, it's really hard to say the right thing. So you err on the side of over-conservatives so that you don't get raked across the coals so, on Twitter so. being like, you didn't say to save enough. So you kind of overshoot, right? And so saving 10% or more might be completely off the table for so many families. Um, and so that's a goal to aspire to, maybe. Um, and it's just one of those old truisms or rules of thumb that like, am I kind of on track? If I don't go and see a financial planner, am I kind of saving enough But what I really think is the more important piece is to actually find out a customized solution for one person because maybe you don't need to save 10%. Maybe it's much less than that. What I come down to with any sort of retirement savings or nest egg building or whatever it is that you want to call it is like save anything that you can because – and I say this a lot in the book too. I would rather you save $50 and do it then have someone like me or somebody else tell you that you need to save $800 a month which is so beyond ridiculously unrealistic for your life and then you give up because there's no point in trying cuz you feel so so screwed that well I can't do 800 so why would I bother and so really anything that you save is good and i i do give that 10% rule just as a you know eyeballing Making sure you're thinking about it because people, sh- you should be saving. And that 10% doesn't necessarily mean like, everything to the RSP. It could also be 10% saving that's like going towards debt or like splitting it up between different savings goals. So it's flexible.
1: Yeah. One of the things that people deal with, I think, as new investors is conflicts of interest mm-hmm. and where are they getting this advice from. Um, you mentioned, for example, uh, you know, you, savings could be paying off debt, right? Um, you increase your net worth just as much by paying down debt as you do by saving. Yes. But that's not necessarily advice you're going to hear if... If you're looking for advice from your friendly neighborhood bank or financial institution who probably wants to lend you money to invest, you got it. or at least wants to discourage you from paying down debt quicker so you can invest.
0: Yes. I'm so sick of the banks, to be totally honest, pushing RRSP loans. Like I, I am. It is a thing that happens during RRSP season, and I have to field that question because it's not always appropriate a lot of the time for somebody, especially new investors. If you don't have money to put in your RSP, there's probably a reason for that.
1: That's right, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I dealt with that in the last episode of the podcast, this idea of RSP loans, and they they, they can make sense for some people, but you know, the idea of sort of an inexperienced investor with limited cash flow... Right borrowing so they can invest more is such a self-interested piece yeah, of advice coming lenders. Yeah, and this person
0: makes, you know, $40,000 a year. Their, their tax rate is not that high mm-hmm. and like the, the, it's just not there. But um, so I find that consumers only have half the, the picture. And so I like to open their eyes to the whole picture so they can make a decision. If it still fits, then great.
1: Right. Now, one of the um, benefits of um, having a sort of regimented saving strategy, rather than sort of waiting till you know February twenty seventh to make your RSP <laughs> contribution, um, is that it allows you to you know set aside the savings first and then spends, spend what's left, yes. right? So it's a little different from a traditional budgeting. You uh, spend a lot of time in the book talking about budgets and you're pretty adamant about saying, not only do they don't work, no. in many ways they make things worse. Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your thoughts about budgeting?
0: I hate budgeting. And again, this is one of those things where when people come into me, they are expecting me to be like, why do you spend on lattes, you know? Ugh. <laughs> and, um, and I'm like, I don't care what you spend on coffee or takeout, I don't care. Um, Uh, what I care about. So I think that budgets make it worse. Let's start with that piece. Let's let's unbundle that. Um, So I have found over the years that people, you turn to budgeting when you want to be financially responsible, right? No one budgets unless they feel like they're a little bit out of control with their spending. So we're talking about a person who already feels like they don't have their financial house completely together. Maybe not a disaster, but they want to tweak it. So budgets typically make you categorize all your spending, into these minute categories like food and then takeout and then pants and, like, all of these different things, right? And then you're supposed to forecast how you're supposed to live and then try your damnedest to stay within that line. And, I mean, we just can't know what's going to happen month to month or week to week. Um, I say this in the book. Like, one week in the grocery store, you might – beyond budget, and then the next you meet, need a lot of cheese because you're hosting a party, and then it's like, well, yeah, you, you screwed yourself on the budget. Can't
1: buy shoes. Can't this buy month. shoes
0: this week, right? Yeah. And so you're constantly borrowing from this category and this category. Anyways, it keeps money on your f- the forefront of your brain all the time, which is like a negative feedback loop that you're scarcity mode. And when you fail at a budget, which ninety percent of people do. Um, you feel stupid and you feel bad with money. When you're not at all, the budget was broken. So I say stop budgeting because I think it's making it worse. It's actually making people feel like they suck at money when they don't. And so the only budget that I say is that hard limit one, which is like knowing the difference between money you can and cannot spend. So get all the heavy duty work out of the way. So your savings and your bills, basically like things you can't get out of every month and save like a bill. I still believe in that. I think that's one of the truest pieces of advice out there ever. And then whatever's left over, like go to town. I don't care if it's on lattes or whatever, like it's your money.
1: Yeah. It's, I used to call it uh, like top down budgeting in the sense that if you include savings as a fixed expense, mm-hmm. like you said, and you take it off the top. You can spend what's left, and it doesn't matter how, right? Exactly. Um, it's not being irresponsible because you've already looked after the savings part. Yeah. Um, and I guess you know the problem with budgeting, as you describe in the book, is is it leads to a feeling of always being broke and out of control and deprived. Yes. And we can only endure that for so long, and then we go out and we make a dumb impulse purchase. And You've got a term for that and I'm going to – I hope we don't uh, – I have to pay for the uh, explicit rating on iTunes but you call it a – Moment, because that's what it makes you feel like you've given up, and so since I'm going to be a failure anyway, I might as well go out (laughs) with a bang.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, why don't
1: you describe a little bit of examples of those kinds of moments?
0: Yeah, and this is what I see all the time, and I'm sure any of your listeners have had a couple. It's just how many are you having, and I think budgeting leads to or leads to more, right? When you feel like a failure or you feel broke, Um, and so a great example is, you know. I've already got $2,000 on the line of credit, you know, F it. What's another 100 bucks? What's another 200 bucks? Because you're already sinking, right? And so that is the opposite of saving obviously it's making a financially irresponsible decision that you're going to regret later and it kind of is this snowball that happens to a lot of us and then all these other financial goals like saving and investing and building a, a, a nest egg fall by the wayside right so if we can find a way to make it' so that we have less and less of those moments um we will like our financial plans better and stay motivated I think that's the real point of the book is like how do you stay motivated to stick to your plan, even when it sucks, right? Like how do you live within your means without hating your life, right? Because if you can do that, then you can have a disciplined saving strategy and you can start moving yourself forward. And that's, that's really what I hope that it helps people with. And that is, is basically getting rid of those terrible screw it moments when you just want to give up.
1: Well, and it's a very difficult thing to do because we all have this sense that Everyone around us is somehow more together than we are. Oh
0: my god! I and know. I think
1: it's the it's the social media influence. Um, nobody ever talks about how broke they are on no! Facebook. They just talk about how amazing their vacation was. Yeah, and you look at that and you realize or you think that everybody's doing it better than you and you're mm-hmm. such a screw up because yes. you can't get your life together. So let's talk a little bit about FOMO or fear of missing out and how that motivates us to do things like buy houses yes. and you know spend more than, than we can comfortably afford.
0: Yeah, I think you've touched on two important things that lead to FOMO is that we only have half the story like with social media, for example. Um, and so you can compare yourself better than ever before in the history of humanity. You've never been able to compare yourself to more people who look better than you. <laughs> (laughs) And so that sucks. I don't think our brains are even ready to take that all in. Um, So there's a sense of overwhelming inadequacy, generally speaking, for most of us. And then you compound that with like constant noise from the media that's like um, housing prices are rising, for example, or like stock markets are rising. And so if you're not participating in those events, and you hear it nonstop, and you already have this sense of inadequacy or you feel like you're bad with money. I mean, it is a a perfect storm to overspend or do something, quote, dumb with your money because you're just trying to keep up and you're not entirely sure which one you're trying to keep up with. So a lot of times what happens is, um, you know, if your friends all seem like they have their Financial lives together, and and they have a house and all this stuff, and you don't, um, and then you have all that market pressure. You you have the you're ripe to overspend on a house, and now you have a million dollar mortgage, don't you? And then you have to live with that, right? And so then that causes all this anxiety and fear at three in the morning. But nobody posts a photo at three a.m. when they are up and they can't sleep because they're you're afraid interest rates are going to rise. Um, and then FOMO also plays into stock market fomo and I, I I bet some of your clients have that too and I mean the the behavioral finance term is called chasing returns I think but uh so essentially you hear about all the wins and you are worried that you are somehow missing out on that because you didn't throw your emergency account into your RSP and and you're so dumb and you should have done that right and then you beat yourself up about it so I always tell clients like Okay, first of all, housing market, stock market doesn't matter. Past performance doesn't indicate future performance. Sure, there are trends, but like you, it, a lot of it's financial luck. Like you, you made a decision at the time and you should expect volatility and that's normal. And you're not dumb just because, you, let's say, you bought into um, an investment and it went down a little bit. Well, give it some time. You shouldn't have been investing if you needed the money within six months, right?
1: Yeah, so. people, people who bought a house in Toronto 15 years ago weren't real estate geniuses. No. They were just people at the stage of the life where they needed a house and they got fortunate. You know, people who maybe received an inheritance in 2009 decided to invest, did extremely well. But it wasn't because they were stock market whizzes. No. It was because they had fortunate timing. And it's very easy to look back. I mean, you could do the same thing. You could, in 2008, you could have looked back And said, well, I'm really glad I didn't get in the stock market. I was so smart. Yeah. In the US, I didn't buy a house in 2004 or whatever it was. So it's very easy for us to judge um, decisions based on outcomes and feel like we should have known. I know. But in fact – we had yeah. no way of
0: knowing. No, and I call it – I, I use a tool called like the – also the comparison thing, like the Beyonce factor, um, because you also probably don't know the entire financial situation about your peers. And so what's cool about my job is that I do. I legitimately know the financial back ins and outs of a lot of the people that I would normally compare myself to. And so, you know, if you look at their Instagram and they're like, the home run done. I'm like, yeah, you're rocking a $200,000 line of credit there. And so I have this really cool perspective to not freak out and feel an – Inadequate because I constantly have a reality check in front of me, um, and so yeah, don't do that comparison game and try not to have that FOMO because it really makes people overspend or make knee jerk reactions with their finances. That is just not great, right? And it makes
1: you worry. Mm-hmm. All right, Shannon, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us uh, how listeners can find you.
0: Yeah, so I would say the best place is the website, which is www.newschooloffinance.com. And that's where we have the fee-for-service practice. And also there's a link to the book there, which is Worry-Free Money. Great. Thanks a lot. Good luck with the book. Thank you.
1: And now it's time for another installment of... Bad Investment Advice, where I do my best to highlight the ways you can sabotage your long-term investment plan. These days, that discussion can really only focus on one subject, Bitcoin. Normally in this segment, I take aim at articles in the media, but this time around, I can't really blame the financial press for the bad advice. In fact, most of the coverage I've read about Bitcoin features money managers, advisors, and financial journalists warning investors to stay clear. Most of them seem to agree that at the very least, Bitcoin is a highly speculative investment you should only make with money you're prepared to lose. And some are even going so far as to call it a bubble on par with the tulip mania of 17th century Holland. Now, in the last couple of months, though, I've received many emails from people who genuinely wonder whether they should be adding Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies to their portfolios. And many of these folks are even committed index investors, and they're still feeling the pull. I started investing in ETFs a year ago and put as much into them as possible, writes one listener to me. But I'm intrigued by Bitcoin and Ethereum right now as investment options. Another one wrote, quote, Choosing a diversified portfolio of ETFs was very satisfying and calming. However, it's been hard to ignore the constant barrage about people who own Bitcoin and are making an instant fortune. Now, notice the common theme in these two emails. Both of the investors had already built diversified portfolios of ETFs, but now they're second-guessing their decision. And I'm sure there are many other index investors out there feeling the same way. This hand is also likely to become even more common as cryptocurrencies become more accessible to the average investor. And since mid-December, it's been possible to buy exchange-traded Bitcoin futures. And several firms, including two in Canada, have filed prospectuses for Bitcoin ETFs that might become available sometime in 2018. The appearance of these products might suggest that Bitcoin is a viable asset class and maybe even something you should be adding to your index portfolio. But before I discuss why you shouldn't do that, I should be clear up front that I don't have any unique insight into Bitcoin itself, nor the blockchain technology at its core. And my guess is that you don't either, unless you happen to have a background in computer science, cryptography, and macroeconomics. So the ideas I want to share with you now are more universal. If you're considering investing in Bitcoin these days, chances are you've constructed a narrative around why this is a good idea. You're trying to convince yourself that the real reason Bitcoin is on your radar now isn't because it rose in value by about 1500% during 2017 because that would suggest, as Shannon Lee Simmons discussed in our interview, that you've got a bad case of FOMO, or fear of missing out. So instead, you've probably told yourself that Bitcoin is the future because traditional fiat currencies are unreliable and because the technology that underpins Bitcoin is decentralized and secure. And if you repeat that long enough, you might actually believe it. Now, let's all agree that even if you only grasp the basics, it is a fascinating technology. And I have little doubt that cryptocurrencies will become increasingly important to the economy in the years to come. So why then am I suggesting that you forget about buying Bitcoin now and reaping the inevitable profits that will result when it eventually becomes widespread? Well, you might want to put that question to people who bought tech stocks in the mid-1990s. Back then, there was this new technology called the internet, you might have heard of it. And people were fascinated by its promise. They imagined all sorts of ways that it would change our lives. They imagined that someday we would replace books and newspapers with digital versions or that online shopping would liberate us from crowded malls. And investors bought stocks in companies that seemed well-positioned to profit from this exciting new technology. You might even remember a few of those companies. One was a grocery delivery service called Webvan, which at its peak was valued at $1.2 billion. Another was called GeoCities, a service that allowed regular folks to build their own websites. Yahoo eventually bought that company for $3.6 billion. And then there was Pets.com, an online business that sold pet supplies and eventually became the poster boy for internet IPOs in the 1990s. Now, of course, all of these companies and many, many others like them went to zero in short order, and anyone who owned shares was wiped out. In fact, the market for tech stocks in general imploded in 2000, leading to a brutal bear market that lasted the better part of three years. But did you notice something here? The dot-com crash wasn't the result of people embracing technologies or business ideas that ultimately failed. People weren't speculating on flying cars or cold fusion. I mean, in case you need reminding, the internet did change the world. People do have their groceries delivered. They do use services to help them design their own websites. North Americans even buy billions of dollars worth of pet supplies online every year. But even if you successfully predicted all of those things in the mid 1990s and you invested in companies on the cutting edge of those technologies, you might still have gone bankrupt anyway. So my point here is this, if you're trying to justify adding Bitcoin to your portfolio, it's not enough to say that the technology will someday become commonplace because you're probably right about that. What you need to do is articulate why Bitcoin will be the cryptocurrency that emerges the winner when there are countless alternatives out there with more being created every day. And my guess is that you can't do that with any conviction. I mean, can you explain, for example, what has changed since early 2017 when Bitcoin was valued at less than $1,000 to make it worth 15 or 20 times more than it was? Can you even name three other cryptocurrencies and explain how and why they differ from Bitcoin? I mean, isn't it possible, maybe even likely, that someday cryptocurrencies, like the internet, will be an important part of our daily lives, but that it will be something other than Bitcoin that emerges as the winner? So the larger lesson here is that it's very easy to be seduced by narratives and to find ourselves lured away from our long-term commitment to investing and building wealth. Humans love stories, and Bitcoin provides a lot of fertile ground. It's an exciting technology with a mysterious founder, and its recent rise in value has come with tales about people who turned hundreds of dollars into millions. And because most of us have known about Bitcoin for at least a couple of years, it's very easy for us to feel like we should have seen all of this coming. I mean, really, wasn't it obvious that this thing was going to explode? We can't entirely overcome these tendencies, they're part of being human. But with a little historical perspective, we can eventually come to appreciate that there will always be a Bitcoin. And if you're going to be a disciplined index investor, you need to come to terms with the fact that you will never profit from them. You won't have stories to tell your friends and coworkers about how you made 1500% last year. You won't be able to boast about how you got in before everyone else. Your stories about prudent diversification and low costs are never going to make you the life of the party, and you might even be ridiculed for following the couch potato strategy. But I suspect that you will have the last laugh because you're an investor, not a gambler, and over time you will fare better than the vast majority of people who think that building wealth is about taking big swings and trying to hit 10 baggers. This podcast is supremely entertaining, but successful investing is boring. Anytime you allow fairy tales like Bitcoin to distract you from your long-term strategy, you're falling prey to bad investment advice. Okay, let's finish up this episode with an installment of Ask the Spud, where we answer your most pressing investing queries. Amanda DL is here as always with today's question.
0: So this time around, we're not going to use an email from a listener. Instead, we're going to discuss a question that we often get from our clients. If I have a large sum of cash to invest, is it better to put it into the market all at once or invest it gradually to take advantage of dollar cost averaging?
1: All right. Thanks, Amanda. Now, this is certainly something we deal with frequently. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the term, dollar cost averaging, or DCA, is a strategy for investing gradually to spread out your risk and also to take advantage of any volatility in market prices. Now many people seem to take it for granted that dollar cost averaging has almost magical properties, that it reduces risk and it leads to higher returns. In fact, while DCA can be a useful strategy, it's often overrated or at least misunderstood. So let's consider when it might be appropriate and when it's probably a bad idea. Now the first thing we need to clarify is that the term dollar cost averaging can be applied to two quite different strategies. The first is related to making regular contributions of new money, the way most people do with workplace savings plans. So you might have $500 from every paycheck go into your group RSP or your defined contribution pension plan, and this new money then gets invested in a portfolio of mutual funds. Because you're saving a fixed dollar amount with every paycheck, you'll be buying more mutual fund shares when markets are down and fewer when they're up. So if markets have recently fallen, your $500 will buy more shares at lower prices. And if markets have been rising, you'll be buying fewer shares at higher prices. If you had instead bought a fixed number of shares rather than investing a fixed amount of money, you would be investing less when the fund was relatively cheap and more when it was expensive, which of course is the opposite of what you would want to do. Now this is the flavor of dollar cost averaging that was popularized by David Chilton in The Wealthy Barber way back in the late 1980s. And in an early edition of that book, he called DCA, quote, as close to infallible investing as you can get. We'll consider in a moment whether that's really true. But let's talk about the second type of dollar cost averaging. And this is the one that our clients are referring to when they ask this question. And it involves investing a lump sum. Now this is quite different from the first type of DCA, which involved investing new money as you received it. In the second scenario, you have a large sum of cash, perhaps from a home or a business sale, pension payout, an inheritance, or some other windfall. Understandably, you might be nervous about going all in. If markets plummet in the following weeks or months, you'd suffer a punishing loss and would probably feel a deep, painful regret. So you might be more comfortable spreading out this risk by investing your lump sum gradually, say 20% now and another 20% every three months afterwards. That way, if there's a market correction during the year, your losses will be reduced and you'll have the opportunity to invest part of your cash at lower prices. Okay, so now that we understand the two types of DCA, let's consider whether they're good strategies. And we'll start with the first type, making regular contributions to your investment account from your current income. This is certainly an excellent strategy for building wealth, but the actual dollar-cost averaging component is really not that important. What makes this strategy so powerful is the simple fact that you're saving a portion of every paycheck. You know, it's not even clear to me why this strategy is presented as dollar-cost averaging. I mean, if you're a salaried employee who gets paid once or twice a month, what alternative do you have? If you want to save, say, $6,000 a year, chances are the only way you can do this is to put aside $500 a month as you earn it. You probably don't have the cash available to make the full $6,000 contribution at the beginning of the year, so there's really not even a decision to make here. But what if you did have that option? Let's suppose for argument's sake that you have a job that paid a $6,000 bonus in January, and let's assume that this $6,000 represents all of your savings for the year to come. Does it make sense now to invest your bonus in 12 monthly installments of $500 to take advantage of dollar cost averaging? Well, I would say no. The only time that DCA would work out in this case is during years when market returns were negative, or at least extremely volatile, and that's not going to be a majority of years. DCA is actually likely to work against you most of the time for the simple reason that markets go up more often than they go down. So you put the odds in your favor when you invest money as soon as you receive it. So to recap, that payroll contribution plan that you have set up at work is an excellent strategy, but it's because of the regular savings, not because of dollar-cost averaging. Okay, now let's consider the other form of DCA, investing a large lump sum gradually. For this example, let's say that you receive an inheritance of $200,000 in cash, and that this represents a large share of your overall net worth. Should you invest it all at once or a little at a time, say five tranches of $40,000 each, separated by three to six months? Well, if you're interested in the academic answer, it's the same as for the employee who received the $6,000 bonus. You should invest it all at once. There have been many studies comparing DCA to lump sum investing over various historical periods and they're quite consistent in their findings. A recent paper from Vanguard is typical. Using data from the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, the researchers compared the results of investing a large lump sum into a balanced portfolio compared with using DCA over 12 months. And in all three countries, the lump sum strategy came out ahead in about two-thirds of the time, regardless of the target mix of stocks and bonds, by the way. And in case you were planning to invest very gradually, they ran that same simulation using DCA over three years. And in that case, the lump sum came out ahead more than 90% of the time. Virtually all similar studies come to the same conclusion. DCA does not usually lead to higher returns. On the contrary, lump sum investing is at least a two-to-one favorite. But that is the mathematical argument and it ignores the human factors. I have worked directly with many investors who have had six and even seven figure sums of cash to invest and believe me, this is not an easy thing to do. You need an iron stomach to invest a large pile of cash like that without feeling very anxious. And reading a study that says lump sum investing comes out ahead two thirds of the time doesn't really help. Because in the other one third of the time, you could lose a huge amount of your nest egg. So I like to think of it this way, if you play Russian roulette, you'll win five times out of six, but I'm guessing that those odds are not very compelling to you. So if you find yourself with a large amount of cash and you're nervous about investing it all at once, there is nothing wrong with using dollar cost averaging. Let's just be clear that your goal is not to increase returns. It's simply to lower the stress that always comes with investing a big chunk of money. Even the Vanguard paper that I mentioned a minute ago acknowledges that DCA usually leads to lower returns, but, quote, these costs may be reasonable if a systematic implementation plan helps an investor overcome any paralyzing fears of regret. Now note their use of the term systematic there because it's key. If you decide to use dollar cost averaging, it's critically important to draw up a plan for doing so. And that plan should have nothing to do with the relative prices of stocks. So don't tell yourself you're going to invest 20% of your cash now and the next 20% only after markets have fallen 10%. Because it's possible that prices won't ever be 10% lower and you'll continue to sit in cash while the markets run away from you. Nor should you base your DCA strategy on specific events, such as, I'll invest some now and some after the election, or after the next central bank interest rate announcement. Because chances are the markets have already anticipated whatever it is that you think is gonna happen, and very often this turns out to be wrong anyway. Whatever you do, don't rely on vague criteria like, I'll invest the rest when things settle down and I feel more comfortable. Because if you do that, you'll find yourself in an impossible situation. If markets rise sharply, you're going to be worried that they're overdue for a correction. And if they fall sharply, you're worried that they're gonna go down further. Believe me, I've seen this happen and it is a recipe for paralysis. So let me share a couple of specific examples of how we helped clients who had large amounts of cash to invest. In the first case, the client had a seven-figure sum that we wanted to invest gradually during 2017. His target allocation was 100% equities, so we agreed to invest 25% at the beginning of the year and then the rest in three tranches of 25% each, separated by four months. So we spread the purchase out over a year. And we agreed on a specific date for each tranche, April 15th, August 15th, and December 15th. Those dates were arbitrary, but by putting them on the calendar, we took all the emotion out of the decisions. Now, as it turns out, we would have enjoyed higher returns had we invested the lump sum in January, but that's not the point. Recall that the summer of 2017 was pretty difficult for markets, and this investor probably would have had feelings of regret if his portfolio was showing large losses just a few months into his decision to go all in. So the gradual approach allowed him to get comfortable with market volatility, even at the cost of some foregone returns. With another client, we invested about $800,000 with a final target of 60% equities and 40% fixed income. Now, in this case, we invested all of the fixed income right away. And this is what I recommend, because although bonds can certainly move up and down in value, their fluctuations are really very small compared with those of equities. So using dollar cost averaging with fixed income is usually not worth it. However, of the 60% equities that um, we plan to do, we put 20% in immediately, 20% three months later, and then the final 20% three months after that. Once again, we put the dates on the calendar and we ignored the financial news on those days and we just went ahead with the implementation. Now this strategy is hardly stress-free. I often say that dollar cost averaging just turns one difficult decision into three or four. And I've worked with investors who planned to invest gradually on specific dates, but then backed out after the first or second tranche. They insisted on delaying the next installment until it felt like the right time, which of course it never does. Look, it never feels like a good time to invest a large amount of cash. It's always going to make you nervous, and that's okay. If dollar-cost averaging helps, then embrace it. It's not an infallible strategy. It probably won't lead to higher returns, but having a structured plan in place does make it more likely that you'll follow it through.
0: Thanks, Dan. If you have an investing question for Dan, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com, and if it has broad appeal, he may answer it on a future installment of Ask the Spud.
1: And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, a warm thank you to the people who bring you this podcast. Nick Jaworski at Podcast Monster, Tara Hunt and Nicole Pomeroy at Truly Social, Amanda DL and all my colleagues at PWL Capital. Stay warm. We'll see you soon.